Hey, this is John from the Human Advancement Podcast, powered by Ruthless Performance. Today, we're going to record June's Q&A. So the last time we did this might have been March, but we're going to make this a regular feature for the podcast. In fact, it might become the bulk of the podcast for the next few months, um, because there are a lot of questions out there. We get a lot, uh, especially from the featured fitness content series that we have on the website. Usually, we post a link on there to our contact page where people provide questions um, when they want answers. Uh, but that's always an option. If you have any questions for the Q&A page, you could ask us directly at ruthlessperformance.com slash contact. Today I'm with Keith Lowry. Keith is going to be uh, kind of my conversational partner here, and he has a few questions uh, for us to go over and kind of go off on some tangents. Yeah, so today I, I came up with some questions I have myself. Um, as John said, there's always questions forming in the fitness industry as as it develops and um prospers but the first question i had is um we got a couple new pieces of equipment here at ruthless like the sled the box how have you started implementing that or tried them yourself to add in the uh programs that yeah that's interesting the i like the box as opposed to what we've done in the studio so far i mean the studio the mobility studio that we're at right now we've had it basically for six and a half months um, and we did not have a box up to this point. Partially that's because of some spatial constraints, but also just because of the nature of slowly trickling in new equipment. Basically every dollar we've gotten um, over the past six months that we could, we just reinvested into new equipment for the facility. Um, and like you said, with the box squat and with the sled, those two things are uh, heavily heavily involved with training the posterior chain, which would cut like the glutes and the hamstrings most more specifically is what we're after. Um, the box we've always used in some capacity. What we've done in the past before we had the box here was just a few 45s depending on the setup. We have the rogue box squat um, and it's, it's adjustable. It's, it's, that's pretty uh, spectacular. The other thing we use that for is step ups. Um, Outside of that, it is a great piece of equipment. It is hard to navigate, kind of moving it around the gym, but for the most part, that's that's done a few. Uh, it, it's done a few different things outside of what you would just consider with the traditional box squat. One of the things that we've done with that is we've we've transitioned a few athletes and personal training clients into having, in addition to box squats or in lieu of box squats, a sumo like a very sumo box squat. Um, and that's been for a few different reasons, one of which is groin health. Uh, we have a kid that's going to be a kicker for a football team, so he's, he was pretty concerned with some injury prevention. Um, so even though it looks like a strength exercise, we're actually building that strength through a greater range of motion to kind of help protect his hips and protect his groin and his knees for that matter. Yeah, the, the groin is a very important part that I feel like that is, is neglected because everyone talks about, especially now, the importance of glute and hamstring health but a lot of times the groin is forgotten and then if you look in especially in football one of the top injuries other than hand like a hamstring is a groin pull yeah and one of the reasons you see that is because a lot of the strength conditioning routines that are out there are predicated on basically training the hips in two dimensions training it forwards backwards or even side to side for that matter but some of the things we do actually train the hips in three dimensions which helps with the groin health as well. So something like that 90-90 hip switch is great for that. Um, one thing we haven't done in a while, and actually I'm glad we're having this conversation because we could actually start incorporating this into our workouts, 
is, um, you know, how we do the uh, support it, where we do uh, a pull-up bar hang. Well, one of the things that you could do for groin health is actually just an isometric med ball hold between the legs so that you're actually getting that, that adductor strength while you're getting all of the mobility benefits of doing a dead hang on a pull-up bar. Um, so that is something that, just based off of this conversation right now, I think we should start incorporating more. We've done it a while ago, but it would be a good thing to start reintegrating that back into the training. I agree. And just just the, the core support with that, too. You know, work on bracing, having the athletes brace as well with that pull-up bar hang. With the weight um, held in their in their legs, I think would be beneficial, extremely beneficial, too. What are your thoughts on, like, a, like a Copenhagen um, plank, a plank where one leg is suspended on the bench and then the other leg will be underneath right and you're, yeah, and you're building that groin up that's a great exercise and the problem with that is the same with the problem with a lot of advanced exercises where it's tough to regress it to a point to get an athlete to be able to start in it but the way you could regress an athlete to start with that is um lessening uh providing a greater mechanical advantage so rather than having them supported so if you imagine uh that one foot is on top of a bench and then your arms are on the ground like you're doing a side plank. Um, the regression would be rather than having the foot out, you increase your your mechanical advantage by putting the leg further and further on the bench. So rather than your ankles being on the bench, it's closer to your knee that's on the bench, so that the hip itself, the groin, isn't supporting as much weight. And then you progress that by moving the athlete further and further out. So you're actually changing their leverage to change the load instead of adding weight. No. Can the um, speaking on the pull-up bar hang with the med with holding the med ball between the legs? Can that be considered a regression for the Copenhagen plank? In a way, totally, totally. And the good thing about that is you could um, it's so much more uh, modular. Like we have, you know, the slam ball between six and twenty-five pounds. So I mean, you could really make it easy on someone by giving them the six, or you can make it a pretty hard exercise by giving them the twenty-five. And then by the time they can hang with a 25 for, you know, say 30 seconds, they're probably pretty well suited to do the Copenhagen plank. And um, going off that too, uh, I noticed a lot of ab- abduction work as well, in, especially in the warm-ups with a band, working on setting the, ba- setting the band up on the leg and then just putting your leg into abduction. What's the uh, significance? What's the, the purpose of doing that? Uh, so what, there's a few different functions of the glutes. So one of them is that hip abduction um, because you have three muscles in the glutes basically and they have different functions. So that is basically just a somewhat, a, the way to think of it is almost like it's a slightly different stimuli than a side lion clam. Um, and the benefit is you could go out a little bit further and you could engage more muscle with um as you get stronger, you get engaged more muscle still by going out further and further from where the band is anchored. So there's more band resistance on that. So you're hitting more of an end range of motion, right? With right. that, and that's the that's the purpose of that. Okay, and yeah. that's hitting that's hitting that hip in more of a three dimensional range as well. Because right. you're not you're not you're along with the clam, you're also hitting that end range and working uh, working some abduction too. Which which is the groin, and the so, other, the other right. value there is that one leg is completely straight. You're, you're supporting your weight with a straight leg, so it actually kind of changes the game a little bit from what you see with the sideline clam. Okay. So that that's yeah that's another function of the glutes is that hip external rotation, and you're getting just a little bit of that in that stationary leg 
just by the nature of the, the body weight moving around that leg while it supports your weight. So that's creating more neural pathways for that. As most coordination, yeah, 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 as everything is. So which would in, in turn help out with injury prevention, getting used to that, that range of motion, correct? Right. And that's, that's just another example. Like between that and then, like you said, about the sled or the box squat, um, that focuses extensively on the glutes. And the two muscles we focus on most here, one of our like the core principles at Ruthless is really, regardless of the athlete, we're focusing on trap development, we're focusing on glute development. Um, traps control the shoulders and glutes control the hips. That's a big posture muscle, correct? The it, trap? Is it, it, is. it is, because, because of what it's doing, because of the implications it has on the shoulder. Yep. Um, because it's, it's holding... Basically, the, what the traps are trying to do, when we think about tone in, in exercise science, um, a lot of strength and conditioning coaches don't like the term tone, but traps are actually a muscle that are supposed to maintain tone. And tone is just um, muscle tension over time. And the purpose of that tension is to maintain the position of the scapula. Um, and what's interesting about that is you'll notice, like after a night of drinking or after a night of poor sleep quality, your postural will actually uh, get worse because that central nervous system isn't as engaged. So while you know you have bad sleep quality, your shoulders will actually move further and further forward, which isn't something most people think about. Um, and the the greater trap, the more frequently you do trap work, the greater, like you said about um, like a neuromuscular connection, the greater that neuromuscular connection is with more and more trap work. Uh, with the amount of sitting that we're doing in Western societies, it's almost hard to overdo trap work. And we're not just talking about traps, like a trap shrug, where you're just bringing your arms up. The traps also have um, two more functions, scapular retraction, which is like bringing your shoulder blades back, and scapular depression, where you're bringing your shoulder blades down, like actually trying to, what they say, like putting your shoulder blades in your back pockets almost. Those are the three different functions. And the function people think about most, that upper trap, that shrug, is the is the one we need to develop the least because it's the one people see on the most regular basis, be it carrying groceries or whatever the case is. Well, I think I think a lot of that is because that's that's the muscle everyone every that's the part of the muscle that everyone can see. Right. It's right at the it's right at the base of the shoulders and it's always it's always been correlated. If you have if those if that part of the trap is big or you have really developed trapezius muscles. Now I'm going to reference um, something that uh, Matt Matt Winning brought up. With powerlifting, he he said specifically, you need to have a really defined, a really developed, I should say, um, mid trap. So that's in between your scapulas, in in order to really have proper strength development in in the deadlift and the squat and even the bench too, because that plays a role in um, stability on the bench. So not even so, the the trapezius is so important in posture but not only that but in strength movements as well right which is another reason that we do uh, so many pull parts because it, it helps maintain that tension in, in the traps and in that mid back over time um, and the additional benefit you'll see there is you know even if someone has bad posture on a regular day-to-day -day life and it even if they're slowly improving it over time with strength training the value of doing a bunch of pull-aparts prior to your workout all that blood flow into your traps Will actually even in the, even though it might just somewhat be in the short term, it will actually improve your posture for the subsequent workout. So 
your shoulders are actually in, situated in a better position while you're doing any subsequent exercise. So even though someone might have bad posture, they do some pull-aparts, the posture gets better for the workout, and then all their strike movements are better. Like that's why it's a great idea to do a bunch of pull-aparts, like prior to something that's challenging to some athletes' range of motion, like an overhead press. If they do pull-aparts prior to that, they could get overhead a lot easier. So would that have the same correlation with a face pull? Yes, totally. And the other benefit of the face pull, especially when it's anchored low, is uh, well, or even anchored high for that matter, is um, you're also getting that scapular depression where you're bringing the shoulder blades not only together, but you're bringing, you're bringing them down as well. So in, in addition to training that mid-trap, you're also getting that, that lower, that trap three, as we call it, the, the lowermost innervation of the trapezius. Yeah, and that's, and that's a big reason why the trapezius can be worked so, so much because it's such a big muscle. That um, and unlike unlike muscles like I'm gonna bring up, say like it working working your deltoids. The del the deltoids are relatively small a relatively small muscle group comparatively. Mm-hmm. So, I mean it can be worked, but it can't be worked to the same extent of that. And plus the the work capacity that the trap has, as you brought up with the, it has to have a certain amount of muscle tone to keep posture. So that yeah. muscle's always been worked. Correct. That that's why it's better suited for. Um, that's, that's why it's better suited for accessory movements. Like we don't ever really do like a two rep max on your ring route or something like that because it's better suited for high frequency, high volume training better than it is for maximal strength output. Um, the closest we'll come to something like that is an overhead press. That's still, you know, pretty trap dominant, but you also do have your delts and things like that. Um, the, the delts can be trained with high frequency though. Uh, like Chad Waterbury would point out, like people with the biggest, uh, delts are like the athletes. We train swimmers, um, are one of our athletes that have really big delts on a regular basis and also gymnasts because they're using it with such frequency. Um, just because of that rotation, that, that frequency of the movements that they, that they do in the sport. Yeah. Just lots of tension, lots of tension on it. Um, no, I, um, Going, going back to the trapezius, um, another good point to bring up with posture, and when you're deadlifting, you're supposed to, you, you would like to keep your, your spine kind of in line or to the point where you're not cat back in or, or in um, inverse in that matter. Um, when you're deadlifting, especially especially in the conventional deadlift, I've noticed that my trap my traps are sore the day after, and that's just, that's the, the trapezius keeping your spinal line and keeping good posture, correct? Right. Which is also, like people think that the deadlift is a back exercise and they'll either think that because they're doing it wrong and they're feeling it in their low back because they don't have much of a butt or they're thinking it's a lat exercise, but the lats are actually getting worked primarily isometrically where they're not actually moving much. The only function that the lats have in the deadlift is keeping that bar in tight. Um, and if the spine starts to deviate too much, a good way to deal with that, a good way to ameliorate that is to have a, a bar, have a band attached in front of you and then deadlifting uh, up and pulling the bar back against the band tension. So as opposed to the band being underneath you, like we usually would have it, the goal would be to have the band situated in front of you so that your lats have to actively pull the bar back um, where it might try to drift forward if you're not as well trained on the deadlift. Uh, but yeah, it definitely is a trap exercise. If you're feeling it most in your traps, it um, just means that's probably your weakest point on it, on the, on the deadlift is the traps, which is pretty crucial. 
um, especially if you're thinking about longevity in the sport, because the traps are what prevents that that's, that flexion in the spine and that end rate flexion is where you see the most injuries on the deadlift. Um, so with the strong traps, the spine stays more neutral. And then you cannot injure the spine if the spine is neutral on a deadlift because there's, it's not getting end range, flex, end range flexion or extension. You're not putting that spine into a... Like you said, we're going into either flexion or extension. Um, there's no way for the discs or the vertebrae in that matter to be put into a vulnerable spot. Um, you brought up a good point about the glutes. Now, um, a lot of the a lot of your clients here, they do a lot of glute work in hip thrusts, glute bridges, especially a lot of banded work. So, what, so have you noticed, especially now that with Western society, everyone's sitting down, so their glute development is it. The glutes are tight and they're weak. So, what's the what's the real significance of doing a glute bridge? In that matter. Oh, good question. So the the nice thing about the glute bridge is now we're getting into almost this is a biomechanical perspective. So when you're doing something like a deadlift or a squat, what happens is when the glutes are maximally targeted, it's where um, you're at the when it's when the muscle is at its longest point on the exercise. So when you're in like in a deadlift, say where it's toughest for you is kind of where you're starting. Um, as you're getting up closer and closer to the top, you're in those last you know, 10, 15 degrees of range of motion before you come to lockout. Um, mechanically, it's not that hard at that point because your, your femurs are almost straight. Uh, so the load isn't inherently as high. The value of the glute bridge is because you're forcing your, your weight up against gravity that is where it's at its hardest is where you're at the most contracted state like you could stand all day at the top of a deadlift without much fatigue on the glutes you couldn't stand you couldn't keep your glutes flexed at the top of a glute bridge all day because that's where it's the toughest um for that so you're actually so on one hand you're training origin and the other you're training the insertion almost like um you're training where it's contracted versus where it's where it's not contracted that that has a lot of implications with, especially with. Uh, I noticed um, people that work in like high demanding, like I would say construction jobs, um, not having proper glute development can lead to more lower back injuries. Yes, because because of that lower back working to compensate for that lack of glute glute development. And what do you see with the, so when we have a when we have an athlete like that or even just a, a personal training client like that. One of the things that we do is, in addition to trying to strengthen the glutes, what we're also trying to do is uh, lessen some of the input from the quadratus laborum. We see, like in, in powerlifting circles, what we call like a second butt. On people with um, weak butts, they have very overdeveloped quadratus laborum. Quadratus laborum, sounding as much as it might like a Harry Potter spell, it's the muscle that kind of sits between um, the, like the top of the pelvis and the bottom most rib and that we call that the second butt that's what gets trained when your butt isn't strong so doing like a supine ql stretch um like this is an audio only format but you can find lots of stretches for the quadratus lumborum but if you have a weak butt i highly recommend doing uh quadratus lumborum stretches the other time i recommend that is um if you feel as though your back is doing too much work on something like a squat or a deadlift 
um, supersetting that with a with some kind of QL stretch is a good idea to make sure that the, the glutes are doing more work than um, than the glute than the than the QL. So before getting into a, squ a squat or a deadlift to uh, get those glutes firing even more, what would you do beforehand? Would you do like say like a banded um, glute bridge? Before? Band of glute bridge. Like today when I came in, I deadlifted before we did this. I, I did a, a yeah, band-resisted glute bridge. Um, and then, yeah, that's that's one option. Basically, from a mechanical perspective, uh, as the butt gets bigger, they, the action of utilizing the glute gets easier. So even if you're only flushing more blood in, you can get stronger just because the muscle fibers are firing at a better uh, at a better angle because there's because it's more engorged with blood. So it would be like like you know there's a door over there. If you if you were facing a door, if you pushed on the side of the door where the handle is, it's easier to push than on the side of the door where the uh, the hell do you call that on a door? Okay. Yeah the you're talking about the, the hinge. The hinge. Yeah. yeah. So that's why, because, so imagine if your butt is almost deflated or if you have a small butt or there's not as much blood in it, you're basically pushing a door open closer to the hinge than you are pushing it open closer to the handle itself. Um, so that's one of the reasons that we do that. Besides just the muscle activation itself, there's also just the very mechanical nature of pressing more in, in a more optimal position and pulling using more glutes. So um, we're going to deviate from uh, talking about biomechanics and different muscle groups. I have a, I have a question that uh, I think, I think it's important for everybody. Uh, honestly, even working out by, you know, by yourself or, uh, you know, you're just starting to get into the gym. What's the importance of having somebody else there with you so like say like a gym partner or um, like as an example uh you know some some athletes or clients that you have come in you uh you have them work out specifically in with different people at different at like the same time almost as like a motivation correct yeah what's the so what's the big importance of that like having having people that are the same kind the, the same training level as you because it pushes you more i think people kind of get too much into a um into a zone of, it's almost like the big fish in a small pond type situation um so it's better to not necessarily you don't even need to be in a bigger pond but you at least want to be around the other big fish so you could see when you see what other people are capable of you more you can more easily recognize what you yourself are capable of um, so it's just it's just creating a positive feedback loop of high performance. Yeah. So, like, uh, so having some athletes, some athletes that train, you know, by themselves usually, um, I've noticed that too. Now, uh, having them train with somebody else that's at the same level as them, mm -hmm. it's it's made them work harder, work harder than they did before by themselves without them. I'm not saying that they don't work hard, but having that external motivation, uh, and there's an energy without them, without the energy, you know, like you said, the energy, the energy increase from, from the environment. It's like, it's, it's, you don't even, they don't even realize it until, you know, at the end of the workout. Right. Yeah. We, 
I've, I've been putting out some free material on the website for free at-home workouts, but ultimately I, I put those up there just because it's best case scenario for an at-home workout, but I do not think at-home workouts are that great, and that's one of the reasons. It's not, it's not a high-performance environment. It's where you watch TV and where you eat fried chicken. It's not, it's not where, you, where you go to just actively get better. It's where you go to decompress and sleep. Um, so the, the gym with the right people is the inverse of that. It's a very high energy environment and being around the right people is great for that. The goal is always to be around someone that's slightly better than you. Um, you know, like even this goes, this speaks to uh, an even greater principle. So just going back to like an example of swimming here, um, every age group swimmer on the planet wants to know what Michael Phelps's workout is. What, their, what his dry land workout is, and they want to do that. But you don't want to do Michael Phelps' dry land workout because you're not him. What you want is the dry land workout of someone who's just a step above you um, in terms of your proficiency as an athlete. That's where you want to be. You get to the Michael Phelps workout by first getting to, um, you know, a high-level high school athlete, a high school swimmer's workout. The um, it, that, that can even be translated to um, some high-level powerlifters as well. And honestly, in every sport, uh, these these athletes are high-level for a reason because they incrementally increase their, their capabilities and they found out what works best. They optimize their own programs. So they did they did that by starting out with a rudimentary program, some the basics, and then worked up from there. Correct? Yeah. Yeah, and, that, and that's kind of the same across the board, I think, regardless of your sport. Um, there is no, yeah, you don't just go right into advanced variations of an exercise. I mean, like, even think about adding band resistance to a squat or a deadlift. We won't, we don't usually do that right off the bat unless there's a very good reason for that. I mean, to get to a, uh, to get to a 500-pound deadlift in the gym, first we usually have someone, before they can get to that, first they got to be able to deadlift a damn kettlebell. Or even prior to that, even a PVC pipe. They need to be able to do a hip hinge with a PVC pipe before we give them any load. Yeah, and work up from there. Right. So I have a question. I also have a question about nutrition. Okay. Um, now, I'm, sp- I'm just getting into the coffee game right now. This is, this is all new to me. So um, what kind of... Um, in the morning, what kind of uh, supplements do you take to help out with coffee? To um, So like energy, energy boost, I, I'm getting out there. Coffee is great. Um, my pre-workout right now, and I take this as my pre-workout, but I also take this regardless of if I'm working out or not. So any more, So every morning? Every, every morning usually, unless I'm fasting, is um, – Coffee is usually, I make cold brew every day, not for any kind of health benefit. I just really like it. Um, I put heavy cream in that. And then in addition to that, I take fish oil and vitamin D. Um, the volume of vitamin D is dependent on a, a few things, but a good place to start is usually either 1,000 or 2,000 um, IUs a day. And doing that in conjunction with the fish oil helps with absorption. Um, I wouldn't do that necessarily with black coffee. like just um, for a few reasons, but the value of the heavy cream in this situation, it's one, it's extra calories, which is good for me, but it's also, um, more fat. And since vitamin D is fat soluble, we just want a little bit more fat in the diet when we're taking the vitamin D. Um, one thing with coffee is it, 
you even if it's even though it's calorie free for the most part if you're doing just uh, you know like a regular French press coffee um, it can mitigate some of the values of value of fasting because of what it does to your liver glycogen so it actually it excretes some of the glycogen from the liver so even though it's a black coffee with no calories in it it will increase your blood sugar because it's pulling out some of that liver glycogen um, so if you're trying to be ketogenic or you're trying to kind of lower your blood sugar um, in order to burn more ketones, uh, you're kind of losing some of that with the with with coffee consumption. Like even for me right now, I could say I, I'm very my level of fat adaptation is very low. My ability to use fat as a fuel is is pretty low because the only time I'm really fasted from anything is the time period between dinner and when I have coffee in the morning because that's pulling out that blood sugar. So my even though I've, I'm low carb, like I'm, I'm zero carb until I eat lunch, so you know, you're looking at maybe between 7 p.m. and 12 noon before a, a carb fast, I'm still, my blood sugar is still higher from the coffee. Um, one thing to think about with coffee too is the volume of caffeine in that, um, and you can get desensitized to it over time. Ultimately, no matter what, even if you are desensitized to it, it will always be a hindrance to sleep quality. But and you can you can have not as many of the upside with all of the downside of destroying sleep quality. Um, so it's important to kind of mitigate that to the best of your ability. I tried to go coffee free. I was coffee free for all of January. Uh, but I was still having tea basically because of the caffeine addiction, I guess you could say. Um, but even that, I was probably down to like, it was only 30 or 40 milligrams a day, but it was still something. Because, but it is, it is a, uh, it is a pharmaceutical, I mean, it's a pharmacological substance that will change your physiology. Um, so it was just a roundabout way of saying I have a coffee addiction, I guess. I really like big iron coffee. Uh, they're out of Steamboat Springs. That's my primary go-to for coffee right now. I have that shipped to the house. And I get a, um, I, drink, I like drinking a lot of coffee, so I'll get um, a pretty dark roast just so I can have a greater volume of coffee with less caffeine in it. So that's the, that's, that's the big difference. Now, uh, I have a question about cold brew. Is there any, uh, so is there any difference between a cold brew, like other than taste and, you know, personal preference cold brew and like a regular hot coffee um give the steep it actually reduces some of the acidity i don't know necessarily that that's a great thing to reduce the acidity i used to think acidity was bad for your body but my I'm, my my perspective on that has been changing over time um so it, it is different um i would say if you can stick with a hot coffee do that um it is better from the perspective that you I do the cold brew, but I just I do that with the cream because I like it. Um, and I do the, my best. The best case scenario is kind of the match between decent enough from a nutritional status and also delicious, which is why I do the cold brew with the heavy cream. Um, but that changes, like in the winter when I'm hunting or something, I'll take the, the hot coffee. But farm like pharmacologically, what it's doing to your body isn't all that different from on like a one to one of say. 12 ounces of hot coffee to 12 ounces of cold brew. All right. I think, um, I think that's, that's it for me. I got to head out. I got to get a haircut and then I'm going to be on the road 
very shortly to head to uh, head to the wedding. Thank you. That's a wrap on today's episode. You can find more about the Human Advancement Podcast and Ruthless Performance on ruthlessperformance.com. I specifically recommend that you head to our online education tab where you can learn more about self-improvement, the physiology of performance, practices for enhanced wellness, and more. You can view all podcast episodes directly on our website at podcast.ruthlessperformance.com. I also recommend that you follow us on both Instagram and Twitter with the handle at ruthlessperform. If you have any questions for our monthly Q&A or wanted to learn more about training with Ruthless Performance, including information on our athlete development training, injury prevention and corrective exercise protocols, personal training, or for consults or assessments, you can get in touch with us online at ruthlessperformance.com contact or via email at info at ruthlessperformance.com. The human advancement theme was written by Bernie Wallace-Savage.